Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. Hey, when you're done listening to this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free app. From there, you can find all of our recent message content. Our app is actually the best place to keep up with everything going on at Hope. If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. What's up, Hope? How are we? We're good. Week six, we're wrapping it up. You guys ready? Have you guys enjoyed the series so far? That's awesome. Well, uh, if you're just jumping in over the past five weeks, this is week six. We have been talking about the victory that is ours in and through Jesus Christ. We've been talking about the spiritual battles that we all face. And no matter what that battle is, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, every single fight that we are fighting is being fought on ground that's already been conquered. But we've been teaching about how in order to walk in that victory, we have to do certain things. We need to pursue Jesus in certain ways. We talked the second week about welcoming and communing and walking with the Spirit. Uh, We talked about submitting ourselves underneath our master's commands, underneath his word to unleash his power in our life. We talked about taking things that have been in the dark, in the secret, and through courage and bravery, taking those things into the light through confession and community. Uh, We talked about when we're up against slow change and things just aren't happening on the timetable that we want, that's okay, don't give up hope, continually sow the right seeds and eventually we will reap a harvest. And I just wanna remind us of something I said the first week, we've been encouraged and challenged to do all of this, not to get God to love us. He already loves us in and through Jesus Christ. The moment you put your faith in your savior, you were forgiven and you were justified and you have right standing with God. But we've been talking about all these things that we need to do so that we can experience the abundant life that Jesus said he came to bring us. Life and life to the full here and now. And that's the type of life tragically that a lot of Christ followers miss out on because they're not willing to put in the work or they're not willing to pay the price. So that's what I wanna talk about during our last week in this series. I wanna end with a challenge. Now that we know all the blessings and all the goodness that Jesus wants to pour into our lives, and now we know some of the ways that we can go about getting that, am I willing to do whatever it takes to experience that? Am I, do, am I willing to do whatever it takes to step into the abundant life that Jesus has for me? Because in reality, that's a question that you are free to say no to. And so this week, I wanna introduce you to three people that had the opportunity to experience the presence and the power of God in their lives. And each person made a different decision. Each person treated that opportunity differently. So I wanna show you those three people and then I wanna challenge all of us to look deep into our hearts today and decide to make a decision. What choice am I gonna make? What path? do I wanna go down? So if you have your Bibles, you can turn it to the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, but we're gonna be all over the Old Testament. So it might be a really good weekend just to make use of the verses that show up on your screen or get out your smartphone and fire up that Hope app. And uh, there's a really cool area where you can take notes. It'll have all the verses that I'm going through. Uh, You can send all your notes to your favorite contacts. I don't know if it does that. I just made that up, but it'd be cool if it did. But Uh, Before we dive in, I got to teach you a little bit about the Old Testament, all right? A little Old Testament history. You guys good with that? 
In large portions of the Old Testament, God's presence and his power resided in something called the Ark of the Covenant. Everyone say the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, we've seen Indiana Jones. We kind of know what that is. Uh, Later, his presence resided in a temple. Uh, Now he resides inside our hearts through the spirit. Uh, But for a large portion of the Old Testament, it was the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark was a wooden box and it was overlaid with gold. It had a solid gold lid and it had two angels made out of solid gold, kind of looking into the center, a place called the mercy seat. And it's where blood would be poured after sacrifices to secure God's forgiveness. In fact, I have a picture. That's not a real picture. We don't have the ark anymore, uh, but that's an artist's rendering of what it would look like. Inside the ark was a copy of the 10 commandments, uh, Aaron's rod and a pot that held some manna, like some manna that they had in the Exodus. And uh, just to put it simply, it was like a God box. God caused his presence and his power to dwell inside the ark. And so wherever the ark went, the presence and the power of God went as well. Uh, the, the ark is what allowed the Israelites to walk through the Jordan River on dry land as they entered into the promised land. Uh, the ark is what they marched around the city of Jericho during that battle for six days and then seven times the seventh day. And in that moment, all the walls fell Uh, After that, the ark was kept in two cities, uh, one called Bethel and one called Shiloh. But even when it was kept there, uh, the commanders of Israel's armies would go and inquire of the Lord, hey, how do we get victory in this battle? How do we defeat this enemy? And God would tell them and they would be, um, they would win against their enemies. So wherever the ark went, the Israel's enemies would fall. The ark equaled victory. But as powerful as it was, it was also a little bit dangerous if you didn't treat it properly, if you didn't follow God's instructions on how to use it. And so God had given them a very detailed list of instructions on how to build it and how to carry it and how to approach it and how to acquire of it. And if you didn't follow God's commands, instead of victory in life, you'd often find that what you got instead was death, which we're gonna see in a moment. See, the ark wasn't something to treat lightly. That's because God was reinforcing this principle we see all throughout the Old Testament. If you want God's presence and power, you have to get it God's way. So right before our story kind of picks up, the ark has actually been captured by the Philistines. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. The Israelites had become pretty disobedient with the ark. They were treating it pretty lightly. They were treating it like a rabbit's foot or like a lucky charm. And so they carried it into battle for good luck, which God told them not to do. And because of that, God allowed the Philistines to capture the ark. And uh, it did not go well for them. Let's just say that. Uh, That's an entirely different uh, sermon. So uh, eventually they decide to send the ark back and they put it on this cart and it goes over the Israelite border into the city called Beth Shemesh. And uh, there's farmers outside. And as they see this cart carrying the ark of the covenant, they're like, oh my goodness, We thought this was lost forever, but now the presence and the power of God is back with his people. Uh, So they put the ark on a stone. They destroy the cart. They start this huge bonfire. Uh, They make sacrifices. They sing songs. They have a good old time. They're barbecuing meat, all sorts of stuff. But somewhere during the night, uh, they have a little too much fun or a little too much wine. I'm not sure what it was. And they begin to treat the ark a little bit too lightly. And that night, 70 men decide to open the lid of the ark to peek inside. Now, they might have been checking to see if the Ten Commandments were still there. They might have run out of room in their Yeti coolers and decided to improvise. I'm not sure, but whatever the reason, bam, all 70 of them died right on the spot. 
because God had clearly said, hey, you don't touch the ark, let alone open it. So the people of Beth Shemesh were like, okay, uh, it's awesome that we have the power and the presence of God, but maybe we should keep it somewhere else. So uh, they find the house of this unassuming guy named Abinadab. Everyone say Abinadab. We're gonna come back to him. And in the middle of the night, he gets a knock on the door and he opens it and he sees the ark and he's like, this is amazing. And then he sees 70 corpses and he's like, what is going on here? And they say, hey, we were just wondering if uh, we could use your storage room for something. And he's like, for what? He's like, the ark. And he's like, oh, I guess. So he, he leads them to his back storage room. They keep the ark back there and get this, there it sits for 20 years. The presence and the power of God is kept in the storage room for two decades. And I get it, like who wants to touch it or mess with it after that? And it's here that our three characters enter the story. And it's here that we get to see three different responses that these people have to the power and the presence of God. The first character I wanna talk about is a guy named Saul. If you don't know, Saul was Israel's first king. The whole book of 1 Samuel is about his reign. And Saul starts off amazing. In fact, the moment he's anointed king, it says in 1 Samuel, God gave him a new heart. And then the spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul. So not only did they have the power and the presence in the ark, but Saul had the power and the presence of God residing in his spirit, which was very rare back in those days. And so early on, Saul did things right. His response to the presence and power of God was perfect. Every single time Saul faced an enemy, the first place he went was to the ark, into the presence of God. And he said, God, how do you want us to handle this enemy? What are your instructions? What are your commands? And he was very careful to obey all of God's commands, even when they were crazy. Sometimes God's commands were a little extreme. And because of this, he's victorious in all of his battles. He just walks in constant victory. I mean, the first few chapters of 1 Samuel are really like a highlight reel of what God can do in and through someone that has just devoted themselves to obedience to God. But slowly, he gets a little prideful. Slowly, he kind of loses his way. Slowly, he starts thinking, maybe it's not the power and the presence of God that's causing all these good things. Maybe I'm just that talented. Maybe I'm just that strong. Maybe I am just this gifted and this wise and this skilled. Slowly, he thinks, maybe I don't need the power and presence of God after all. And besides, in order to take advantage of the power and presence of God, in order to use it and wield it, you have to follow all these rules and all these commands. And God's commands, they're often hard. They're often costly. They're often extreme. Sometimes they take a whole lot of time. And on multiple occasions, Samuel, the priest, tells Saul exactly what God told him to do to secure victory. But Saul starts to find all these excuses to do it his own way. He's like, that's gonna take forever. The enemy's gonna be gone before then. I have a better idea about how to fight this battle. That command, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. That, that's too costly. That's too extreme. That's too drastic. We don't need to do all that. That's not the way other warriors handle things. And slowly he consults the ark less and less. And he does things his own way more and more until eventually the spirit of God leaves him. And God actually says in 1 Samuel 15, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king for he's not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my commands. And because he walked away from the Lord, the last few years of his life are just filled with defeat after defeat after defeat. He never again experiences the victory of God. 
and he becomes a bitter, prideful, delusioned, selfish person opposed to anyone who tries to turn him back to God. In fact, at the end of his life, he's inquiring not from the ark, but from evil spirits. Like he's consulting the spirits of dead people instead of the living God. And First Chronicles tells us how his life ended during his final battle with the Philistines. He's surrounded on all sides. All of his sons are killed. And the Bible says this, Saul groaned to his armor bearer, take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword and died as well. And so Saul and his three sons died together bringing his dynasty to an end. So how did Saul respond to the power and the presence of God? Well, he just outright rejected it. He said, thanks God, but no thanks. I'm gonna do it my own way. And just so you know, that is a choice that you are free to make. That's probably a choice that some of us have made the past few weeks where we feel strongly God leading us to step out in faith or do something, but we've just decided to reject it. I've made that decision in certain seasons of my life where I feel God leading and calling me, where I know all the blessings that he has for me and the ways that he wants me to go about getting it, but I just dig my heels and then say, no, 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 I'm gonna try it my way just a little bit longer. I'm not willing to pay that high a price. I'm not willing to do anything that drastic. Thanks, but no thanks. It's just simple rejection. And that's a choice that you are free to make. But hopefully you see how a life like that ends in utter defeat, the exact opposite of the victory that God wants you to walk in. So that's one response, rejection. But there's a second response that you can have, and I have a feeling this is an option that a lot more of us take in our life. It's not rejection, but it's indifference. Remember our old buddy Abinadab, the guy who has the God box in his storage room for 20 years? Well, this is his response. After Saul's death, David becomes king and his first act of king is to go and try to get the ark and bring it into Jerusalem. He just so desperately wants the power and the presence of God in his life. He says in 1 Chronicles 13, it is time to bring back the ark of our God for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. And so David gets all these Israelites gathered up and they make the 10 mile march from Jerusalem to Abinadab's house and uh, they knock on the door. But when they get there, they notice something really strange. They notice something absolutely incredible, something that is unthinkable. See, for 20 years, the ark had been inside the home of Abinadab. And yet when David and his men get there, nothing had changed. Nothing had happened. Nothing bad had happened, but nothing good had happened either. And if you know anything about the ark, you know how incredibly strange that is. There is no other place in, recorded in the Bible where the ark of God did nothing. There are times where, where it causes death and punishment because of sin, or there are times where it causes blessing and life because of obedience, but this is the only time that I could find where it does nothing. The life of Abinadab, the life of his sons was absolutely no different, even after 20 years. Why? I think it's because of indifference. Like Abinadab and his family just treated that ark like a freezer out in the garage like that box of St. Patrick's Day decorations that you bought last St. Patrick's Day because you had too much Guinness and got on Amazon, right? It's just been in your closet for a year. You're not gonna set it out. It's just forgotten, just collecting dust. 20 years it sat there. 
And for 20 years, Abinadab never got curious. He never read up on it. He never studied about it. He never sought the Lord through it. It was just kind of a cultural relic from Israel's past, something that was important to his grandparents and maybe to his parents, but it wasn't anything special to him. And sadly, that is how a lot of good Christian folks in America treat God's presence and power today, especially if you grew up in the South, especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt. I can't tell you the amount of people that I meet and they ask me the dreaded question, what do you do for a living? And I'm like trying to feel out the situation. Sometimes I say teacher, who knows, but I'll say pastor most of the time. And they'll say, oh, pastor, that's awesome. I'm a Christian. I got the, the Jesus sticker on the back of my car. But then I start talking to them and realize they don't really go to church anymore. They don't really read or know what's in the Bible. They don't really have that many Christian friends. And so what they really mean is they said a prayer one time and after that, nothing much has changed. They're what we would call cultural Christians, right? Their grandparents went to church. Their parents kind of went to church. So they describe themselves as Christians, but there's no power. There's no change. There's nothing different about them. And it just breaks my heart. Like if being a Christian was a club, they have their membership card kind of tucked in the back of their wallet, but they don't really participate in the abundant life that Jesus calls them to. They're just kind of indifferent. And it's so heartbreaking. Do you know what other people in different parts of the world would do to have access to all the amazing resources that we have? I mean, people dream of being able to go to church multiple times a week without the fear of persecution. We have multiple copies of the Bible in our house that we can read about and pursue and know the heart of God. We got podcasts and sermons, all these things that we can know God and pursue him and walk with him. And it's just so commonplace. We just take it for granted. I remember I went to Haiti probably eight years ago now, and I was leading just a Bible study in one of the small villages. And my jaw just dropped when Bible study came around and this tent outside filled up with 50 or 60 Haitians who had taken the day off of work to walk all day so they could hear God's word expounded. I was in Indonesia about four years ago. And the place where we were, it's a Muslim-controlled company, but you're, uh, country, you're not allowed to build a church. Christians can't own land. They're kind of looked down upon and ostracized. We couldn't say the word Jesus or talk about the Bible in public. And yet in the face of all that, these Christians meet together at this little goat farm and they learn different languages just so they can read the only Bible that happened to make its way into that country at the time. But in America, church... The Bible, God's people, eh, take it or leave it. I mean, it's fun sometimes, but if I have something better to do on a Sunday, I mean, I'm, I'm doing that, right? It's like we've been vaccinated to the power and the presence of God. It's like we've become immune because we had just enough Jesus that we built up a tolerance to him. And now we're immune through our indifference to all that he wants us to experience, Right? But if we're not careful, that indifference can actually lead to irreverence. It says in 2 Samuel, that when David got there, they got the ark out of the storage room and they placed the ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's two sons, they were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the ark. They're like, we've had this thing for 20 years. We know how it works. 
But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the ark, steadied the ark of God before it fell into the dirt. And then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him dead because of this. And so Uzzah died right there beside the ark. I mean, Uzzah just assumed, hey, this has been in the corner of my bedroom since I was a kid. What's the harm in reaching out to stop it from falling in the dirt? I'm kind of doing God a favor, but see, Uzzah had forgot what he was dealing with. He assumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt on the ground, but the dirt never rebelled against God. The dirt didn't have to sacrifice for sinning against the holy God, but he forgot and the indifference led to irreverence. And he paid the price, right? That's the second response, indifference. And hopefully what you're seeing is those two options don't really lead to the abundant life that Jesus wants for us, right? Rejection and indifference don't get you the power and the presence of God. But now we get to the proper response. And it's from our man, David. It says this, David was now afraid of the Lord because Uzzah just died. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? And so David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David, Jerusalem. He gave up his dream. He said, I guess now I'll never have the power and presence. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. And the ark of the Lord remained there at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And notice this, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. <laughs> and I love this. After all that's happened, the 70 dead guys in Beth Shemesh, the death of Uzzah, the ark is plopped down into the yard of a Gittite. Obed-Edom is not even a Jewish person. And God blesses his socks off. Abinadab had it for 20 years. Obed got it for a few weeks and just gets blessing after blessing. And it's God's way of saying to David, David, don't leave the ark here. I want to go with you. My, my, my intention is not death. My intention is to bless you. I want you to experience my power and my presence. You just have to get it my way. And so David goes back to the city of Jerusalem and he gets out his copy, his scroll of the Old Testament, which isn't very long at that point. And he says, man, if God is so insistent that I get this his way, surely he must have given me some instructions. And so he reads the Old Testament back to Ford and he takes notes. And sure enough, he figures out there in black and white are all the instructions that anyone would ever need. The exact way to get God's presence and power is there and had been there for anyone who wanted to find it. It's just that God's way was really costly and Saul didn't want to pay the price. And God's ways take a lot of work and a lot of exertion and Abinadab couldn't be bothered to do that. But David, see, David was different. He figures out that you can't move the ark with a cart and oxen. God says, I'm not Cinderella. Don't put me on a horse-drawn carriage, all right? He said, priests have to carry the ark and they have to be purified. You have to kill animals and go through this ritual. And so David gets out like his tally sheet. He's like, well, I gotta pay for animals. Okay, I gotta hire a butcher. Got that, that's gonna be costly. And then they had to carry it with special poles. You probably saw them on the picture earlier. And those poles were made out of costly wood and they were overlaid with gold. And so he's like, that's even more expensive. And then the ark had to be housed in this multi-room tent with all these expensive furniture items. It's called the tabernacle. So he's gonna have to remake that. So that's more expensive. And it's not just costly. It's gonna take a huge amount of work. So the ark was heavy. 
It was made out of heavy wood already, but it was overlaid with gold. You know how heavy gold is? Really heavy, heavier than lead. And the top was solid gold. The angel statues were solid gold. The poles had gold, uh, gold on it. And four priests had to carry it 10 miles to Jerusalem. So it's gonna be tiring. And if David learned anything from his first try, he doesn't want the priest to stumble. So he has to widen the roads and make a smooth path into the city. That's more cost. And so David realized after all of his studying to get the power and the presence of God, it's gonna be a huge price. It's gonna be a lot of work. It's gonna be really costly. That's why no one had tried it for 20 years. That's why people right now were mocking him for trying it and trying to talk him out of it. It would be costly, it would be exhausting, but for David, it would be worth it. And so David gets busy. He rebuilds the tabernacle according to the instructions in the Old Testament. He widens the road. He builds those special golden poles. He gets some four priests that look like Jason Gore who are strong enough to carry that ark into town, right? He makes them purify themselves. And then he calls the whole country to Jerusalem. And he says, today is the day the power and presence is coming back. So him and hundreds of people go down to Obed-Edom's house. They put the ark on poles, they're very careful, and they take one step and guess what? No one dies. And they're like, this is awesome. And they take a second step, a third step, and no one dies. And they take a fourth step, a fifth step, a sixth step. And David said, this is gonna work. Set the ark down. They sacrifice animals. They have a worship service. And then they make it all the way to Jerusalem. And it says, so all Israel brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant with shouts of joy, the blowing of ram's horns and trumpets, the crashing of cymbals and loud playing of harps and lyras. And after all the cost and all the effort, the end result is joy because he finally got the power and the presence of God and he got it God's ways. And because of that, David became the most successful king in Israel's history, not perfect by any stretch, but under his lead, uh, uh, the Bible says that God gave Israel rest from all of their enemies. They walked in victory. See, Saul made the choice to reject it Abinadab made the choice to be indifferent to it, but when it came to God's presence and God's power, David wholeheartedly pursued it. And that's the choice that you have to make to experience the life that Jesus has for you. Not rejection, not indifference, but wholehearted pursuit. No matter the cost, no matter the effort, no half measures are gonna get you there. Jesus says this all the time. He says, if you want to follow me into the abundant life, he says, you got to pick up your cross. You got to sit down and count the cost. You have to lose your whole life if you want to find real life. He tells a rich man, you want, you want the life that I have? Go and take everything that you have and sell it and give it to the poor. He tells his would-be disciples, leave your trade, leave your families, leave your hometown. See, following Jesus costs everyone something. And oftentimes it's the type of cost that, that the culture around you, the world just can't understand. People thought the disciples were crazy. So what are you doing, Peter, James, John, you're leaving your fishing boats, you're leaving your livelihood, you're leaving your family. They left everything to follow them. But see, if you want the power and the presence of God in your life, you're gonna have to do some things that are countercultural. Listen, if everyone was experiencing the abundant life, guess what? You could live like everybody else. 
But because not everyone is experiencing that type of life, you're going to have to live differently to experience something that no one else is experiencing. You're going to have to live like no one else is living. I remember a guy came into my office and um, years ago, it was probably eight or 10 years ago now, but I still remember it. And he had a lust problem. And I know there's children in the room. I'm not going to go into details. Um, but I came in just to kind of, he came in just to, to have me counsel him and came to find out it wasn't a little problem. It was a full on addiction. And um, one thing had led to another thing, had led to another thing, had led to apps, had led to chat rooms. And he traveled for a living. And by his recollection, the affairs were like in the, the 30s or the 40s. And so I'm like, man, this is not the life that Jesus died so that you could experience. And he said, I know. And I said, well, let's just think crazy. Like Satan's obviously got a stronghold in your life. What decision could you make or how could you set up your life differently, maybe drastically differently so that Satan wouldn't be allowed to get to you that way or so that you wouldn't be tempted to move in that area? And he said, well, I'd have to blow up the internet. And I said, well, that's probably not gonna work. Um, he says, that's where it all starts. And I said, well, what else could you do? And he said, well, I guess I, guess I could get rid of all my devices Without those, I kind of couldn't do much. And I was like, well, how many devices do you have? And he said, well, I have two computers and I have two cell phones. And I said, trash them. And he said, I can't do that. Like, I connect with family there. How am I gonna get around? Like, I need these for work. I can't get rid of those. And I said, well, then quit your job and find one where you don't need them and put those things in the trash. And he said, that's a little too, I can't do that. And so I said, well, you'll never be free. You'll never experience the abundant life that Jesus has to bring. It's worth the cost. I remember earlier this year, um, I was stressed out. I had this new job. I still don't really know what I'm doing. Thank you guys for your patience. But I was stressed out all the time and I was working overtime and I was constantly checking emails and checking um, text messages and working on sermons on my phone and I'm checking social media. And I remember my habit used to be I'd go to bed every single night, an hour, just scrolling through Reddit and social media and emails and stuff. And my kids said, hey, dad, can you put your phone down and be present with me? And um, so I knew my smartphone was kind of a source of anxiety. It was just kind of pulling me away from what God had for me. And the straw that broke the camel's back was actually um, my middle daughter, Reese, wanted to get TikTok. And I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up. And uh, I was like, no, absolutely not. And uh, she was insistent, I want to create things. And so I called some youth pastors here and they said, it's a great way to create, but you have to be careful. And so I took their advice and I made a joint account with Reese and set the safety measures for her and the safety measures for myself. And now I can see what she views and what she makes. And so she went off to make a TikTok and I sat down on the couch one afternoon and I was like, I wonder what this TikTok thing is. So I scroll and I scroll and the next thing I remember <laughs> is this like two and a half hours later and I've been on TikTok and I don't remember a single video, but I'm like, oh, with my personality, this is dangerous. And so uh, I've been reading some books too and you don't have to agree with me, but I don't think the digital modern way of life is conducive for human flourishing. And so I did what some might consider drastic and I got rid of my smartphone and I got a different type of phone. This is my phone now. See, it kind of folds like that. You guys remember these? It's a flip phone, man. And uh, I've had it for, I don't know, five months now. And uh, you can call, uh, you can text. 
you can navigate not very well. It thinks the Raleigh campus is right in the middle of I-40, so it can kind of get you to where it's at. But uh, apparently it gets weather alerts because I got that first one a few uh, minutes ago. Um, but there's no browser. There's no apps. Um, there's not much you can do with this. And in some ways it makes life harder. I can't scan QR codes. So when I ask for a physical menu at a restaurant, they're like, are you crazy? And uh, the maps aren't very good. I have to like print tickets when I go. Texting takes forever, right? Um, But I'm more present with my wife and my kids and I'm less stressed. And uh, now that I've had it for five months, I'm not ever going back. And now I realize I don't even have to worry about stuff that other people have to worry about. I don't have to worry about females sliding into my DMs. You know why? I don't have DMs. And I don't know how to get them. And even if I figured it out, I wouldn't be able to use them, right? And for some, that's extreme, right? Man, a smartphone is a good tool. You can take pictures on your family. You can post Bible verses on social media. You can invite friends to church and that's true. But listen, listen, if it's a good tool on a good day, but it's a tool that Satan can use to drag you away from the abundant life or drag you into sin when you're having a good day. I'm just foolish enough to think then the good has to go out with the bad. Didn't Jesus say something like that? He said, if your right eye or your right hand causes you to sin, what did he say? Pray for it. He said, talk about it at small group. He said, teach us some Bible verses. No, those are good things. But he said, cut it off. And I just wanna give some of you the freedom to know that you can do that today. If something is holding you back from God, you can cut it out of your life. And some of you need to get drastic and bold to experience the abundant life. Some of you are so strapped with credit card debt and it's a good thing and it can increase your credit card score. But if you have a shopping addiction, cut that thing up and throw it away. Some of you, man, Satan has such a stronghold in your life with lust and you've tried all these different things and accountability software. You just need to cut the internet off at your house and that's possible. We did it in the 80s and 90s. We were just fine, right? Maybe it's not something, but it's someone. It's a group of friends. Every single time you hang out with them, it's sin after sin after sin. There's someone toxic in your life that is pulling you away from God, pulling you away from his ways. And you need to block that number. You need to delete that contact and cut them out of your life. Not your spouse. Don't hear that. Okay, you can't do that with your spouse or your teenager. But it might seem radical right now, but in the scheme of things, I promise it's a small thing. I don't know about you, but life is too short And God is too amazing and too joyous and amazing that I wanna experience as much of him as I possibly can before I see him face to face. And that's what I want for you as well. I don't wanna get to the end of my short time here on earth and said, I had so many opportunities. And there are so many times where God invited me to go deeper and and to to go farther with him and deeper into the life that he has for me, but I wasted it. Whatever you do to experience the power and presence of God, whatever the cost, whatever the amount of worth, whatever the amount of work, it will be worth it. I mean, Jesus says this. He says, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property, along with a little persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. 
Paul says in Philippians, kind of skip down to the last verse. It says, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Or Jesus says the kingdom's like this. It's like, the, it's like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man, man found it, he hid it. And then in his joy, in his delight, out of his pleasure, he sold all that he had so that he could experience the treasure. So in view, that all, in view of all that we've talked about the last six weeks, what choice are you gonna make? Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to do the work? Are you willing to do the crazy things, the radical things, things that people might not understand so that you can wholeheartedly pursue Jesus? If you are, take out your battle cry card, take it out of your pocket. If you didn't bring it, you can write this down later this week, but our battle cry for this week is so simple. I will do radical things to pursue the power and the presence of God. I'm not gonna be like Saul and rejected. I'm not gonna be indifferent to it like Abinadab. I will do radical things to pursue the power and the presence of God. I will pay whatever cost. <laughs> I'll put in the amount of work because life is too short and God is too big. And I want to experience the very thing that he died for me to experience. I will do radical things to pursue the power and the presence of God. Let me pray over us as we wrap up this series. Father, that is our heart's cry. We have victory in Jesus. I pray that we would begin to walk in it. Father, no matter what battle we face, it is yours already. It's been won in and through the death and the resurrection of your son. So this week, I pray that we would finally taste freedom. And once we get a taste of it, and we would be so overcome with joy and delight that that's all we want. We want more freedom. We want more grace. We want more mercy, more of you, God, in our marriages and in our parenting and in our jobs and in our thought life and in our finance. So Father, would you remind us so that we have the courage and the strength and the willpower to wholeheartedly pursue you. Father, would you go before us? Would you go around us? Would you go behind us? And would you lead us into abundant life? And it is the name of your son, we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message and encourage you to share it with your friends and family. If you live in the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina, we'd love to meet you at one of our weekend gatherings. For campus locations, service times, and information on our children and student environments, check out gethope.net. To make sure you don't miss our next message, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. We would like to invite you to support what we are doing by visiting gethope.net slash give. Through generosity of people like you, Hope can run programs like our food pantry, homework club, project classroom, and many more.